So an offensive role. And the other robot, which is then in a more defensive position, will get the defensive role. And so you would say of those 93 goals, they're quite well distributed. We, we are designate our robots with names for the public and within programming, of course, with numbers. So usually robots two and six are top scorers because those get usually offensive positions by default, more or less. So for example, what, what you see, one of our robots, which is the uh, one uh, which is attacking, which is uh, Sassy, based on Messi. In the World Cup final, it drove 2.2 kilometers. Hi, my name is Gareth Thomas from Tangible Computing. And I'm Andrew Rutgers, co-host. This is a podcast about where computing meets the real world, from the fast and the complex, like controlling an engine, to the imaging of a patient, or even scheduling an airline. We want to trigger your curiosity by talking to the people behind the scenes of making the modern world happen. Deepening your understanding of where computation plays a role in our everyday lives and motivating you to help engineer a better world. This podcast is powered by Version Bay, a consulting company that offers experienced consultants to professionalize your MATLAB, Simulink, and Python projects, minimizing the risk and quantifying the value in migrating to newer software environments. And now, let's find out how software drives the world. Hello, everyone. Today on Tangible Computing, we have Walter Kuypers. He is a program officer at the Eindhoven University of Technology, but also an ex team leader of Tech United and very passionate about robotics. So Walter, thank you very much for joining. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. I'm a long-term passionate RoboCup follower. So maybe for uh, today, can you tell us a fun fact about yourself before we get into RoboCup itself? Yeah, sure. So, so one of my passions is, of course, related to robotics. That's, of course, all very modern. But what many people might not know is that I also have a passion for uh, even antiquity, as some people would call it. I'm also really interested in uh, Greek mythology. Uh, so everything about the, the Greek heroes, Perseus, Thesis, uh, that kind of stuff, all those heroes. So that's got to be very helpful for uh, naming uh, things in competitions because any num I, I used to do solar powered car racing and there was any number of uh, Perseus and you know various Greek inspired or Roman inspired names for the uh, teams. I didn't bring that up because of course the robots in the competition they have to be named after our Dutch heroes in the soccer team so I don't stand a chance there I'm afraid. It's a very sensible naming strategy to get us going when you say the robots so i'm very familiar with what robocup is but can you maybe for those of the listeners who are not so familiar can you tell us a little bit what is robocup robocup is a worldwide competition in which uh, thousands of researchers and uh, students participate and what the aim is or what the aim started uh, is robots playing soccer autonomously that means that they are not controlled by humans, but once they're put onto the soccer field, those robots have to do everything themselves. And are they fully so, are, are they fully autonomous independently or are they controlled by a central server? So the robots, that depends a little bit on which league within the RoboCup we're talking about. The RoboCup has many leagues and in some leagues, there is one central server which takes uh, control of all the robots on the field still autonomously it's an autonomous system and humans cannot control it at that moment or should not control it in the case of where the uh, team from Eindhoven University is participating in the robots themselves are also decentralized but they can communicate with each other when you say different leagues and there are thousands of researchers, so when did this actually start and why are there different leagues? Yeah, so this all started um, back in the 90s. And that's when they decided we want to defeat the human world champion in 2050. 
and beating the world champion, the human world champion, of course, takes a tremendous amount of robotic skills which had to be learned. And of course, you can put 2000 researchers researching exactly the same, but that, that won't be as efficient when the, uh, as if when those researchers focus on different tasks. So within the RoboCup, we have leagues that focus, for example, on robot locomotion, focusing on robots that walk, that run. Uh, that's the humanoid league uh, as one of the leagues. Uh, and there is also one league where robots have wheels, which makes it very, very easy for them to control compared to those uh, humanoid robots. But there, the focus is really on strategy. And hopefully, when we are converging as the whole RoboCup towards 2050, all those leagues will merge. And then we have a robot which has legs, which can run and which can kick. But the robot, which also knows a lot about strategy, which was learned with wheeled robots. I'm trying to get a mental picture in my mind here of, of what's going on in the competition. So how, how big are the robots in the league that you're playing? How many are on the field? How big is the field? I mean, is this a, a, a full-size soccer field with 11 on each side? So, so unfortunately, this is, a, this is not yet the stadium-size uh, soccer, unfortunately. So we're, uh, as Tech United, we're playing in the middle-size league. And those robots have, uh, they're uh, approximately 80 centimeters high. They should fit in a box of 50 by 50 centimeters. And they usually, when I ask people what they look like, they say like they uh, look like uh, traffic cones. So this is a traffic cone that would, would kind of come up to uh, my, my waist or a little bit lower. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So when you say traffic cone, so I, I'm assuming that this is not a random shape that you're choosing. So, so, so why is it in the shape of a cone? Yeah, that's actually a good question. So of course, from a mechanical perspective, we of course want all the weight of the robot to be as low as possible. And moving the center of mass, moving that down as much as possible. Uh, that's why there is a large base near the ground. But these robots, they also need a good overview of the whole field, seeing opponents, but also seeing the lines of the field to know where they are. And also, of course, seeing the ball, which is uh, very important when playing soccer. And to get this overview, the robots have at the, the highest point of the robot, they have a camera which is looking upwards into a parabolically shaped mirror, and which gives them this overview, which is then from 80 centimeters higher, which is, of course, then you can see way more than from down low. So that's why we have this uh, pylon-shaped robots. And do they have other sensors on board? You mentioned a, a camera with a parabolic mirror. Do you also get to use LIDARs or other things? We get to use uh, we get to use actually all the sensors that do not intervene with sensor systems of other teams. So indeed, this camera, of course, is uh, totally allowed. We also use a, a Kinect camera, the one you usually buy with your Xbox. We use it to see depth. That's not possible with just one camera on top of the robot. We use a Kinect camera for that, which is very important when you. Or for example, the goalkeeper, and you have to estimate when to make a move if the ball is uh, close to you and is flying through the air. But aside from that, there are many sensors. We need encoders on the, the motors, and these encoders can see how many times the wheels have turned. And by, you know, by combining that information with where the robot is, or at least where the lines on the field are, the robot can determine very accurately where it is on the field, on centimeter level. And there are many more sensors uh, on the robot. What's the computing power level uh, in, each of these, uh, in each of these robots? Are they running sort of a, a Raspberry Pi? Are they running a, a large server, a big graphics card? I don't know how to quantify that effectively, but it, it, how much processing are they doing? They're doing a lot of processing, of course. What we use are industrial computers. Uh, these are uh, using an uh, i7 uh, processor, not one of the latest uh, generations. 
Um, but uh, say but uh, an earlier generation, uh, the Kinect camera, which I mentioned, requires a lot of processing, and which is done by an NVIDIA Jetson uh, board and an NVIDIA Jetson GPU. And that's separate to the industrial computer, which processes all the images from the Omnivision camera, which is on top of the robot. So let me see if I understand this correctly. So you, you, you participate in a student competition, which is got thousands of researchers. It's split up into multiple leagues and the league you're focused on is this middle-sized league where there's these five robots, which are about waist high and they are 100% autonomous. They've got this little camera looking up and then they play soccer together as a team without any human intervention. So how do you actually get robots to play with each other? So, I mean, I understand how to play football with a friend. I say, hey, pass me the ball. How does that actually work in robots? Yeah, so that's something uh, we as Tech United have been looking into a lot. It's, it's really difficult. You mentioned you playing uh, soccer with a friend. There's a lot of non-verbal communication going on there. And probably if you raise your hand or your friend raises his hand, then you know what he means. And especially when he points to a place, then you might know, hey, I have to pass the ball there. And we've been focusing a lot on making that also non-verbal communication. Of course, there's verbal communication, but especially the non-verbal communication, uh, making sure that you can actually yeah, translate that to bytes, to variables, which are communicated over Wi-Fi between the robots. Yeah, that's something we've been looking into a lot. What do you need to tell your teammates when playing soccer? So there's another part of that. So you're saying playing football, right? So football has a referee and their rules. So how do you have robots following rules? And is there a concept of a referee? And how do you make a foul? Is there a foul? Is there such a, such a concept? Can you go a little bit deeper in that? Yeah, sure. So we've taken at the start of the competition, we've taken the, the FIFA rulebook, the, the one the humans also use, and we started striking through rules which we couldn't at that moment comply with. And now as time progresses, we as a league, so the researchers themselves are actively discussing which um, of those assumptions, which of those strike throughs we should put back in the game to be as close to the FIFA rulebook as possible. Because of course, in 2050, we need to beat the humans in their game with their rules. Well, during a match, we have a referee, which has an, uh, a very good knowledge of what's in the rulebook. And he will make sure that all uh, the robots on the field, so those 10 robots comply with the rule rules. He has a whistle to stop the game. And then a referee, a second referee on the side, will then push a button on a central computer, which is in contact with both teams. And for example, say stop or a free kick for the magenta team or free kick for uh, the other team or a goal kick or whatever. Uh, and that's the, the way it works. So we have a real human referee, which is refereeing a bunch of robots. Is the offside rule uh, in play? Yeah, that's that's the main question we always get the offside rule no that's not in that makes it easier yeah that that makes it easier for the referee that's definitely true and uh, we're discussing actually uh, at this moment also whether we should bring it in or at least it is have it has appeared in discussions lately the thing is that the field we use is smaller than a stadium sized field and that makes it a little bit difficult. If offside would also be one of the rules, it would be difficult to comply with and it would uh, deteriorate the game, we think. So we hope that we get bigger fields. Of course, that brings a lot of challenge uh, and hopefully we can someday add the offside rule as well. So you've been involved in the RoboCup for quite some time now. Can you give a few examples of how these rules have changed over time and what that actually meant for the teams participating and on the engineering side of things? Yeah, sure. So we, we always tell this great story that at some point we, we developed an active ball handling system. That's uh, the robot has two wheels which sit on the ball if the robot has possession of the ball. 
And then these wheels turn in such a way that the ball rolls along with the robot. And before that time, there were only passive systems. With an active system that we introduced at some tournament, suddenly we could uh, also drive backwards and take the ball with us along that uh, route. What we would do is drive backwards till we're almost at the, the goal area, eh, close to the goalkeeper. And then the goalkeeper, as the ball was on the other side of the robot, could not see the ball. So that goalkeeper of the opponent team was didn't know where the ball was. And then we would turn very quickly. We would turn around and then either shoot in the left or the right corner. Yeah, that brought that we were, of course, very happy. We scored a lot of points uh, in that tournament. But at some point, we also, and we had to agree, of course, with the other teams, that that's not the way we, that we want to play soccer. And that's why at some point we added uh, a rule. Actually, that's a rule which human soccer does not know. But we added the rule that it's not allowed to drive backwards for more than one meter. And actually, one other rule which is coming close is you cannot drive with the ball in possession in the active ball handling system for more than three meters. Because, of course, humans, they dribble the ball by kicking it slightly forward. And a robot really has a grip tight in his uh, ball handling system. And so that means that if we would only drive around, they would, could build like a tank robot, which drives very quickly to the other side of the field and then just shoots. Now we want to see passes. And that's why we implement those rules make sure that we also get the game we want to say. And then if you keep going down that uh, reasoning of changing rules, I'm assuming that every year that puts a lot of pressure on the team leaders and the team to kind of come up with new strategies. Can you speak a little bit of how you maybe record some of the games and then take that into account of your next generation and your next developments? And maybe a, a few examples of you know, do they pass the ball? Do you have to pass the ball? How does that actually change the way the engineering disciplines come together? Yeah, sure. So, so there are a lot of rules which are changing and we're participating ourselves heavily in that discussion. Uh, we are a team that likes to pass, that plays soccer by passing around all the time. Um, so that's what we're actually at, uh, actively advocating in those discussions. What that means that after a tournament is done and then some taking some rest, then all the teams get together again, but then in a more a friendly setting to discuss about these rules. And then we advocate, for example, a new passing rule. Uh, one of the rules we have is, for example, that before a goal can be scored, there has to be a pass between two robots of the same team. So you cannot just intercept the ball uh, from an opponent robot, turn around and shoot at goal. When such a rule is implemented, and that's usually, um, so after a tournament, so that's November-ish every year, then those new rules are uh, implemented or decided. Then in January, we get the formal confirmation that that rule will be implemented in the next year uh, from the technical committee, which governs the whole league. And then, yeah, well, usually June, July, August, that's when the tournaments are organized. And that's when our robots, for example, suddenly need an ID about who had the ball uh, last, which team had possession of the ball last. Uh, did we make a successful pass between two robots? Uh, and, and those kind of uh, statistics, those kinds of semantics, we then suddenly have to keep track of and yeah, we have from November till June, I should say, to create such new uh, things. Of course, alongside everything that we have to improve to make sure that we, for example, uh, stay world champion or get our world champion title back. So, so it sounds to me that this is quite a challenging process of going through that. There's a lot of change. And, um, and it sounds that you as a developer or the owners of the team, you are kind of like the coaches, right? So all of a sudden, you're like the coach defining a strategy. In normal football games, you know, you see the coaches on the sidelines continuously shouting and changing and mixing and matching during a game. Does the same kind of concept appear with you? Can you change the way that the robots 
interact or play from game to game, minute to minute, uh, or even at an individualistic level? Uh, so, so changing strategies game to game is uh, something that definitely happens during a world tournament. For example, one of our fiercest opponents is uh, from China, and we don't get to play against that team most of the year. So suddenly when we meet again at a world tournament, we need to get a feel for their new strategies. So, and then we're going to try all kinds of new strategies to counter their strategies. And of course they are doing the same. Uh, and that's what happened. Game to game changes to the strategy. Uh, within games, there is also one part in the rules to, to account for this human coaching. Because human coaches can, of course, shout, hey, do this, do that. Uh, that's something we also uh, were really interested about. And we have experimented in the past with using QR codes, which can be picked up by the soccer player, uh, the robotic soccer players. So then one would have to drive to the sideline. The coach would show a QR code. And then the robot could communicate to the rest of the robots. For example, we have to play more offensive. We have to play more defensive. But that's not widely used at this moment within the league. Most of the teams resort to the one strategy or the multitude of strategies that is defined before the match. Yeah, and that strategy has to be good. Otherwise, you'll lose the match. And, and I'm kind of curious then that you keep using the term team. So it sounds like a complex engineering problem. I'm assuming that it's not only electrical engineers or only mechanical engineers who have to come together to make this work. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about how big is a team and how, how diverse backgrounds you need to make this a reality? Yeah, so the team from the Eindhoven University of Technology, Tech United, is a team which consists mostly of mechanical engineers, actually, from the mechanical engineering uh, faculty, and, and also some electrical engineers, also a couple of software engineers. Um, but we're, we're really enthusiastic about also uh, getting people from other faculties. Uh, but at this moment, it's mostly mechanical engineers, also because even within the RoboCup, you see that we're quite the mechanical engineering uh, team. We try to solve a lot with mechanics instead of, for example, electronics or programming. But yeah, of course, that's also changing. Uh, I think we have a team of approximately 15, 15 to 20 uh, students, PSG students, alumni, so which have already graduated for even more than 10 years, which are still enthusiastic and which still return every Tuesday to a program to cooperate uh, to improve the robots. So, so when you say that there's uh, 15 people, so I remember at university, people stay at university for a finite amount of time. So they kind of come and go and graduate and, and then they're off to the next gig. So how do you as a team maintain consistency and keep the knowledge within the team year over year? Uh, at, at this moment within Tech United, that's really due to, for the most part, due to some people that really are still in the team ever since it started. So they have already uh, graduated, they already got their PhD titles, but they're still involved in the team. Um, and those people are, of course, currently training the new students uh, that, that are coming into the team. And one, one great way that we get these new people uh, coming to Tech United is uh, through internship assignments, bachelor and projects, as we have them on the university. And those people or those students they do their assignment and they're that enthusiastic. And of course, it's a great platform to test stuff. So they also want to continue working on their assignment even when they're done. So that's, that's our in, uh, yeah, the incoming stream of uh, new students. And well, they, they, those learn very quickly. So, so, but that's learning within a team. I have this idea of like football teams, like the Dutch national team or the Portuguese team. They don't share their trade secrets with the other teams, right? But if I understand correctly, the goal is not for a team to become the best in the world, but as humankind, as a society to evolve and be able to compete and accelerate the pace of which you develop and get to that goal. How do you actually share knowledge amongst other teams and or 
Do you share code designs? How, how does that actually work? Yeah, so this, this open source aspect is actually very important. Actually, you mentioned it perfect. Uh, of course, in the end, the goal is to, as a RoboCup Federation, beat the human world champion. There's not one team which will take on the human champion. It will be the world of robotics versus the human world champion. How do we do that? That's a good question. Um, every year, we organize a workshop uh, in one of the participating countries. Uh, and that's after the tournament, one or two months uh, directly after the tournament. So then there are not too many trade secrets for the next year yet. Um, so then we can share everything. We present, people ask like, hey, in the tournament you did this. How on earth did you do that? Uh, but also, of course, it's still a research event. After the research or after the tournament ended, there's also a symposium on which a lot of teams present their new, new ideas. And part of the qualification for the new tournament is also writing a qualification paper, which you have to state the new things that you have developed. Alongside those things, uh, we have a very open community. So if new teams are joining or there is a team which needs help, usually during a tournament, you just go to another team, uh, grab a beer together and discuss what, what is new or, yeah. So usually we're not too good at keeping our treats, uh, trade secrets, except for those in the strategy. Those are important. So, so Walter, this sounds like a super complex engineering task. There must be also some of these war stories or funny events. Is there any story that comes to mind that would be worth sharing? Yeah, sure. So, so we have a lot of problems, of course. If, if we look further than the field lines, uh, and we're, for example, looking for something yellow, which could be the ball, uh, yeah, inside the field lines, everything is well-defined. But outside these field lines, uh, there, there is audience, sometimes even very close to the field. And we had some cases where there were little children wearing yellow T-shirts, and those were seen by some of our robots as a ball. And then suddenly a robot drives very quickly up to the sideline to get a ball. And well, if that's directly towards uh, a child, yeah, that can be quite, quite upsetting for such a child. I can imagine. Of course, everything is safe. The robot will stop at the line. But if there is a robot coming at you at uh, three to four meters a second, then I, I also personally do a step backward. Do you, do you see a lot of change in the winning teams every year or is the, the stack of teams relatively consistent? And I'm thinking I used to be involved in solar powered car racing and I was actually on staff for a number of years. And there, there's a handful of teams that tended to do really well all the time, partly because they, they, they had the wins that helped them get the sponsorship, that helped them bring in top students within their schools. And it ends up being this virtuous cycle. But as a race organizer, it was actually really difficult because you want junior teams to come in and it becomes very difficult to compete with these very well-established ones. So it sounds like your, your community and your sharing really helps with that. But do you, do you see the outcome of that in a really varied outcome at the, at the winner's uh, podium? Uh, not yet. So, so Tech United ourselves, we have won a couple of world championships. We usually, for the number one, two, three, we trade places with China. We trade places with the Portuguese team, which is also really a really fierce opponent. There are very, very promising starting teams currently. And as a league, we also see exactly the, the challenge you are sketching. And we are actively collaborating with those teams to make sure that they reach their full potential right away. Because in some sense, of course, we uh, always want to become world champion. That's, of course, best and also for sponsoring it would be even fun, more fun if we had these really, really interesting tournaments where if we go to a tournament, we're not sure we might even make third place because we have uh, 10 fierce opponents, which we, we, we're not sure we're going to win enough. Uh, one of the drawbacks of this, of this competition, of this middle size league, is that these robots are quite expensive. They're uh, over two, uh, 25 thousand euros by piece so that's five you need to play um, and that doesn't even include all the programming hours as you probably can imagine 
And so that's quite quite a large number, and it's difficult to raise that without appropriate sponsoring. So yeah, that that's yeah that's a vicious cycle we also see, and we're trying to uh, evade by investing a lot of time also in collaborating with these starting teams. Are they standard robots that you always all teams use exactly the same hardware, or how much can you are you allowed to customize the robot? We. Uh, as Tech United, we have invested a couple of years ago some time into developing a standardized platform for the middle size lead. Because before that, all the robots were custom made. Every team makes their own platform. But that's really difficult to make uh, because we also set the limit to us for 5,000 euros per robot. So that's one fifth of the robots we use. Um, but that's really difficult to make a reliable robot. Uh, sturdy, robust, which can actually go out on the field and play with the other teams. And you have to imagine these five robots, even though they know uh, where the opponent is, sometimes if you want to get the ball, you want to get possession of the ball, sometimes you have to well, risk a couple of collisions to get it. And some teams are willing to take more risks than others. So you need sturdy and robust hardware. Are, are failures common? Because that was actually a big differentiator in solar car racing was the reliability. And a big thing that allowed the top teams to win was that they were just super consistent and could drive all day with no breakdowns. Yeah, so fa uh, failures are getting less frequent, I would say. Uh, what happens during, of, of course, a failure can happen. For example, a cable can, a mechanical cable. So for example, for the kicking mechanisms, these robots can kick quite hard, but there is some wire which is uh, threaded to some pulleys in our system. And sometimes that system, yeah, well, the, the cable snaps or something like that. And yeah, you, you either uh, see it on the computer somewhere or you see the robot trying to kick, but it doesn't do it. Uh, then we are allowed uh, to take the robot out. That's a human intervention because a human has to go onto the field, take the robot out. So you'll always be penalized for that. In this case, you are not allowed to bring in another robot for 30 seconds of game time. These games are, by the way, two times 15 minutes. So 30 seconds is quite a lot to be with four robots. And then that mechanical failure has to be treated very quickly because we only have six robots. So, so you need to swap out robots very quickly. Um, and also, of course, electrical wires can come loose, uh, USB connectors. We don't use a lot, but sometimes they, the one we have uh, goes loose. Yeah, a lot of things can happen. But of course, when two robots almost at full speed collide, then a lot can go wrong. So when you say full speed, so just from my understanding, how fast do these robots actually go? Yeah, they can they can drive quite quite quick actually. So what they can do, I think, at three to four meters a second, but they can kick even harder. So ten meters a second is their when they shoot at full speed. So, so it sounds like that this is a complicated piece of engineering and that that budget that you said, the 25K makes a difference, right? So I'm assuming the teams with higher budgets have the possibility of buying better hardware, better components that must play a role. But on the flip side, it sounds that also if you have budget constraints, you probably also incentivize creativity in a different shape or form. I would be curious to hear your thoughts on, on that balance and trade-off. Yeah, sure. So, so indeed, what you see is that the teams, which, and that's also what Andrew came back to, teams that win gets sponsored, industry is interested, and they get to buy, well, uh, quite good equipment. And starting teams don't have that luxury yet. But indeed, and that's, that's the flip side, with creativity, motivation, those teams come really far. And once they get interest from industry, then suddenly things can grow pretty quickly. And then teams which deal with a lot of legacy and which are, how do you say, comfortably, comfortably participating and without too much, which too much, without too much hassle, can suddenly be surprised by such team which suddenly have a very good strategy or which presents suddenly a new camera system 
which is actually quite well. And then we get thinking like, hey, should we do this as well? But then we're already one step behind. What's a typical score for a match? Is this like traditional football or soccer? You know, one zero is not unusual match score. Or is it more like basketball where it's sort of 60 to 80 or something like that? In our games, that depends a bit on the team we're playing uh, against. So from the our fierce opponents, so with China, we usually get scores in terms of uh, uh, three to three, uh, four to three, uh, th- those kind of scores. Also with the Portuguese team, with some other teams, sometimes if they're really starting, then it's really an imbalance. And then it's more about how quickly we can score goals. And those numbers run into a lot. For example, I looked uh, back to the previous world championship. That's already the one in Sydney. And of course, that's before even last year when we couldn't participate in the tournament. Then we made 93 goals in 10 matches. So that's nine on average. And then there are these games against uh, the Chinese, which usually three, four, so it's kind of an ice hockey level scoring is typical. Yeah, yeah. Is every robot program the same or are there elements of randomness which are associated with a robot behavior to kind of mimic the superstars so that you, of those 93 goals, that you have robot X, which is actually the team's best scorer? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. So our robots are all programmed the same. They have the same software. But one thing about this nonverbal communication I was already talking about earlier, of course, similar to real human soccer, these robots have a specific role on the field. And they, based on that role, they might take a more offensive position or a more defensive position. These roles are distributed throughout the uh, game on on a regular basis. So, for example, if one of our defensive players comes into a position which is actually a really good offensive position, suddenly by, by changes in the, in, the, in the playing field, then that robot will automatically get an uh, attacking role, so an offensive role, and the other robot, which is then in a more defensive position, will get the defensive role. And so you would say of those 93 goals, they're quite well distributed, but the interesting thing is that due to the fact that you see that, I think it's not, it's the, the a couple of numbers. We, we are designate our robots with names for the public and within programming, of course, with numbers. Uh, robots, usually robots two and six are top scorers because those get usually offensive positions by default, more or less. So for example, what you see, one of our robots, which is the uh, one uh, which is attacking, which is uh, Sassy, based on Messi, uh, get, drove in the World Cup final uh, again in Sydney two years ago. It drove 2.2 kilometers, which is quite a lot for an uh, yeah for an offensive player. So he got the offensive role quite quite many times throughout the match. We've been speaking a lot about the middle-sized league, but you mentioned that there are various different leagues. How do you actually see the combination of these leagues and the evolution of them? And what role do each of these leagues really play in getting to that unanimous goal of being able to have a complete football team? Yeah, so sure. So we have this this wide spectrum of soccer leagues, uh, which of course are all working towards this goal of 2050, where we want to beat the human world champion. Uh, in the meantime, of course, of course, there is a lot of uh, know-how on artificial intelligence, robotics generated. And there are also some leagues, uh, for example, a rescue league where uh, rescue robots are built, but also a service robot league where also Tech United participates in, where we actually uh, have built two robots, two service robots, which well can do the usual things in, uh, in your household, such as moving things you can talk to these robots that's completely different than our soccer field robots uh, you they can listen to you and actually uh, if you ask them to bring a bottle of coke they will bring it to you they will open the fridge and take it for you and they can actually recognize humans and whereas the soccer league is really high paced 
dynamic environment, but well-defined. Robots are black, the ball is yellow, and the, the field is green. Such a household can be very diverse, and that's a totally different approach, a totally different league, different approach, but which uh, the league can actually learn a lot from the soccer leagues and also vice versa, but there is a lot of knowledge shared there. And when you talk about the other leagues, so there's a variety of them, the robots you're talking in the middle-sized league of the cone, these, these have got wheels on them. Other ones, I think you mentioned the term humanoid, or some of them are biped robots. How, how does a game look like that? Are they walking around? Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So the, the other leagues, so one of them is the, the humanoid league. Uh, and also there, there are various stages. So there are these now robots. And these are very cute walking robots. And we're actually a little bit jealous of that league because that attracts a lot of attention on tournaments because uh, there is this human aspect to that and those robots are cute. Um, but it's not that fast-paced soccer yet. We, of course, hope, uh, hope that also the humanoids will get there. But it's really exciting, I also have to admit, because when one of those robots is in front of the goal and is lifting his leg to, to kick the ball, then it's always the question whether it will either fall over or whether it will really kick the ball and score a goal. So also there, there is some really, there's a really good suspense throughout the whole uh, hall. Those now robots are still quite small. And of course, if you increase those uh, biped or humanoid robots, if you increase their size, uh, then it gets more difficult to keep them upright. So we also have these human size, adult size humanoids. And there is really about walking, uh, kicking and maintaining balance. We humans, for us, it's really easy to do that. But for robots, it's still quite difficult to do that, especially when, for example, other humanoid robots are pushing you and trying to move you over. So yeah, th those matches are a bit slower, but they are as important for our goal in 2050 as middle-sized league and the now robots. Uh, and do those kind of also focus maybe on other elements of the football game, like maybe like penalty shootouts? I'm, I'm thinking that might be a logical thing for the humanoid bigger robots to, to focus on. Is that how it works? Is it basically like penalty shootouts or, or does it vary? Yeah, so they, they're in, currently in a stage where their rulebook is very different from the FIFA rulebook. And there it indeed amounts a bit more towards indeed something that looks like a penalty shootout. There is walking involved, almost towards running, but also shooting is, of course, a really interesting uh, experience. But for these robots or for these teams to already have a robot that can kick a ball, it's, of course, really good if you can practice that in a match with just a penalty shootout. So I imagine that definitely being one of the parts uh, which is heavily trained, but also heavily um, tested throughout the tournament. So it's very interesting the way that you refer to the robots as almost if they're human peers, which is a very nice touch. And the fact that you humanize them, and I'm assuming that plays a role also with the audience to kind of engage. So it's that people also see these not as robots, but as an interesting thing that also inspires children. I'm assuming this is a good motivational inspiration for a younger generation and diverse audience. But um, I'm kind of curious of uh, your thoughts on why this is so important for researchers and individuals to do it and the skills that they acquire in this, how do you see this translating into uh, post-academia lifestyles? Yeah, so, so one of the main reasons why we actually do the RoboCup is to promote research to artificial intelligence and robotics. So these, the, all these students and researchers, they're doing research. They want to be the best and, well, they are quite motivated to do that. So that's, of course, one of the most important things. Uh, of course, within the lives of the individual researchers, um, yeah, this, this is a great experience. You can, some people with, within the team, I have to say, refer to a tournament really as a top sport. Uh, really at the top of your game, you have to operate. We work at tournaments, we work, I think, usually six to seven days for 
I would say at least uh, from eight, eight, nine-ish in the morning to 11 in the evening. So that's, um, I will, aside from that, you only sleep more or less, eat a little bit, but that's usually on the venue behind your laptop. Uh, but it's really hard when things get tense and, and you, have to, you have two hours to prepare for the next match, which is really important because you're in the knockout phase. You haven't slipped, slept well for five days. Yeah, stuff can get tense. And within a team, you learn a lot about how to handle others, but also yourself when you're yeah, low on sleep and you, you need to do a lot within the coming two hours. So those people learn a lot, especially during tournaments, but of course also in the whole phase running up to the tournament. Quite a bit of that sounds familiar with SolarCar, similar type of experiences. And also, I think with SolarCar found the experience and the really hands-on and applied nature of the experience set people up really well, that later careers were generally went very well based on that experience that they had and the, the learnings and the experience and uh, the, the passion that they demonstrated doing the, the solar car event. I think it also, as someone who hires occasionally, uh, seeing uh, people who have built up uh, some skills through passion like that really differentiates them from the rest of their class, where otherwise you're just looking at, you know, who had yeah, the highest uh, grades. And maybe to kind of understand a little bit more about you as a person. So how did you actually get involved in this? And what drove you to say, hey, I want to program robots to play football? Or have you been always passionate about football? Or was there something deep in your childhood that you one day said, hey, you know, I wish I could be a better football player and I'm never going to get there. So I might as well just program robots to outperform my peers. Tell me your superhero story. <laughs> Well, actually, one fact, coming back to that soccer experience, we're in a team of uh, 15 to 20 people. And I think at this moment, we have two people that play soccer themselves. So for soccer playing people, it's not that, that attractive for some reason. But my personal story is, I, I've, before I came to the university, I was at the University of Applied Sciences. Uh, I'm really enthusiastic, always have been about robotics. Um, not so much about soccer, unfortunately. But at some point, I think it was in the World Championship in 2013, Eindhoven uh, hosted the World Championship. And I was there, not connected to the team from Eindhoven or to the RoboCup in any way. And I was sitting in the stands, uh, being at the final match of the tournament. Unfortunately, the team from Eindhoven lost that, that tournament in the final match against China, I think it was. And then I was on the stands and I was like, yeah, that's cool. And I was looking to those people, to those members of the team, of the Dutch team, uh, that were beside the line. And I was like, yeah, that would be really cool to be at some point uh, along, those along the field lines, coaching and screaming to those robots, because also we team members scream to the robots. But yeah, at, at that moment, I wasn't really uh, focused on university yet. I wanted to go out into the industry and build robots, do stuff with robots, those big arm robots, move stuff around. Uh, that was perfect. But then at some point I got the feeling that I wanted to know how to build such a robot and how to optimize it, optimize its design, uh, know more about the specifics. And yeah, then I found that I wanted to know that much more that I started looking into university. Yeah, then I <laughs> enrolled in mechanical engineering at the Eindhoven University of Technology. And then at some point, uh, I was, of course, really enthusiastic about robotics. And then at some point, I met René, who was my supervisor for my uh, graduation project, but also the technical director of uh, uh, Tech United. Um, and he actually sent me for my internship to Portugal. Uh, to the Portuguese RoboCup team. And uh, that was my first hands-on experience with soccer robots, but from a different team. That was quite interesting. But then when I got back, yeah, well, in the Portuguese team, we did some really interesting research. Uh, and afterwards, of course, Portugal is one step ahead because they already had that technology and that know-how, which I developed. So then it was a no-brainer to join the team and get the... the stuff working on the, the robots from Eindhoven as well. 
So that, that's how I rolled into the team, actually via Portugal. So, so that, that's super interesting. The logical question that comes next is, what are you going to learn next? Yeah, so, so I've been a team lead for uh, two years and I've learned a lot about project management. And indeed, in those last moments of the tournament, uh, what, what should you do? The team is mostly self functioning it does everything uh, itself but trying to keep everybody motivated uh, that that's most important so i've learned a lot there currently within the team i'm programming again so i'm back uh, at the key at the keyboard of my laptop and uh, yeah going about the newest approach we are going to take towards strategy soccer strategy and aside from that i'm moving more to the uh, abstract levels. So I'm currently in my role as program officer. I'm looking to project acquisition, looking at the higher level lines, for example, where we go as a European Union, uh, where we should go with our robotics research uh, as one of the topics I focus on. So this is super cool. And if there are other people who are interested in this, what would be the right way to reach out to you? Yeah, of course, we are, of course, also on all socials. So if you are interested, definitely have a look at our YouTube channel. We've got, we do live streams uh, during the tournaments and those are, of course, stored. There's live comments during the match. They also explain a lot. So if you're interested, definitely check those out. And if you want to follow us, of course, Twitter, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn is also where we're a bit active. So yeah, keep a focus on the socials. And with that, this is a great place to stop our conversation today. I wanted to thank you for listening to Tangible Computing. While we have your attention, we really want this podcast to trigger your curiosity and motivate you to engineer a better world. So let us know if you have any ideas for future topics or speakers, or even how to make this podcast better. Just send us an email to tangible at tangiblecomputing.com.